So what do you talk about on Resurrection Sunday? Uh, my experience with the churches is that uh, pastors do one of two things. They try to find a new uh, wrinkle in, uh, in the story of the resurrection. Or they just preach the same message every year. And uh, uh, both can be successful. The ones who... Uh, who have a good one that people enjoy listening to. Uh, it's almost that comfort of a, uh, of a movie that you enjoy watching it again. And those who want to hear something new, you know, if you can find, you know, something about one of the rocks that was next to where Stephen, uh, Stephen, uh, John ran in and almost tripped on that rock and make a sermon about that, you can do that as well. <coughs> the truth is this day is central uh, to our focus. Now, in the bulletin, you'll see the title of this message is um, uh, The Paradox of A, The Tomb. It shouldn't say that. The original title of this message was The Paradox of a Grave. And then I realized that I needed to make it about the tomb, and so I changed it to uh, the, the, uh, the Tomb. So I became indefinite or definite about the article. And left them both in there, which is a paradox, so we're okay, all right? But it shouldn't have the A there. Um, the, this, this day is central uh, to, uh, to our confession and to our faith. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and because he lives, uh, we both face this life and its impending death. And this day also points to our blessed hope that one day he will return. And those who have fallen asleep in him will be raised from the dead. And we who are alive and remain will be changed and gathered with them to live and reign with him when he comes into his kingdom. So it's a good day. He is risen. Amen. I'm becoming more and more aware of a problem among evangelicals and non-denominationalists. Not a problem that directly affects salvation more a problem that affects the teaching, expression, and understanding of our hope. And since at the Disciple Center, we're wanting to make sure that our children are grounded in truth and that they can articulate correctly this Judeo-Christian faith and not get caught into little pop side things, I thought that it would be important to talk about um, the paradox of the tomb, the, the issue of the meaning of the tomb, which in some sense is a meaning of, of loss and grief and mourning. And I, I think that in part, part of the problem of evangelicals and non-denominationalists is they uh, think the only tomb that matters is his. And it's empty, so now it doesn't matter. Uh, and I think that's a, a wrong understanding. So I want you to turn with me to John chapter 11, familiar passage. John chapter 11, we'll begin at verse 18 uh, with the raising of Lazarus. In verse 18 of John 11, it says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, just just over the Mount of Olives. Um, Many of the Jews had come uh, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. 
Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha, being a good Jew, well versed in uh, the scriptures and in the hope of resurrection, says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Daniel was very clear about this. Uh, and many of the prophets made it clear that at the end of time, God would raise the dead and there would be a judgment. And then there would be a reward. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, I want you to notice something uh, in this passage. Uh, Lazarus, to coin a phrase, was dead to begin with. <laughs> uh, he'd been dead for four days when Jesus arrives. And as one sister will say, certainly by now he stinks. His sisters are in mourning and many have come to comfort them. And this entire event is about the death of Lazarus. So I want you to notice that there is no discussion that Lazarus is in a better place. There is no talk of heaven or being with God. Or even being with Abraham, though he certainly was. Moses and the saints. That's, that's understood, but it's not the focus. The focus is not on the spirit of Lazarus. The focus is on the body. And that will remain the focus. We focus on, at death, we focus on in salvation. We focus on all of this stuff as I'm going to go be with Jesus. I'm going to go be with the Lord. That is not the biblical focus. It's true. Those who are absent from the body are present with the Lord. That's not the focus. The focus is that Lazarus was dead. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. That's the comfort. She says, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. The theology is clear. But the theology is also personal and present. I am the resurrection. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. What does that mean? It means he's living even though his body is dead? No, it means his body, he, spirit and body will live again. And the one who lives when I return will never die, body and spirit. So we continue then in verses 38 to 45. So Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. See the parallel? Jesus had a tomb with a cave and a stone. Lazarus had the same thing. Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. For he has been dead four days. 
What is the focus on? The body. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. He's not saying, Oh, he's in heaven. The body doesn't matter. They removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You can imagine the people standing around. Jesus has wept. Lazarus is dead. There's no reviving four days in. The the stone is open, maybe so he can do uh, the mourner's cottage. Maybe he can uh, look in and see him. Who, Who knows? But instead, Jesus says, Lazarus, come here. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. That traditional burial, again with Jesus, you see the parallel. When his resurrection takes place, the face cloth is rolled up in a place separate from the shroud as we have on our altar in the back. He said, unbind him and let him go. Many therefore of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him, I dare say. (laughs) Now, this tomb is a cave and a stone covers it. And Jesus calls Lazarus out and he comes out a whole person, body and spirit, but not a transformed body. This is a body that is subject to sickness. This is a body that is subject again to death. This is a body that is subject again. There is nothing that can happen by a miracle of God in this creation that won't end up being undone. Everything that happens here is temporary. Not so with the resurrection of Jesus, which is eternal, but also focused on the body. It's hard not to see the parallel between the tomb of Lazarus and the tomb of Jesus and the contrast between the raising of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. One temporal and one is eternal, but they both require the body. So I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 23. A chapter that has always fascinated me and has a listing on my bucket list that for some reason never seems to be able to be checked off. Chapter 23 of Genesis. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, 
I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Now where is he? He's in the land of promise. But he says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them and said, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field for a full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even to all who went into the gate of the city. They're having a negotiation here. He says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you only please listen to me, I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham and said, My Lord, listen to me. A price of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim. And Abraham weighed out for Ephraim in silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephraim's field, which, is, which was Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field, and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the confines of its border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. Now, there's a negotiation going on here. But there's much more than that. Abraham has been promised this entire land that God will give it to him. And when Abraham dies, he will own only one piece of that land. A cemetery. He'll own a grave. It is there that Abraham and his wife Sarah will be buried. It is there that his son Isaac and his wife will be buried. It is there that his grandson Jacob will be buried and his wife. The only piece of the promised land that will transfer from what he owned in this life to the next life, is that cemetery. It looks like he didn't make it. There's Abraham, he's dead. There's Sarah, she's dead. There's Isaac, there's Rebecca, there's Jacob, there's Leah, they're dead. Once you look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see the cave of Machpelah. Now you'll notice it's built over 
just like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And if you go inside and you try to look for a cave, you won't see a cave. What you see is kind of a building just like you see in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I've made it to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I've, been, I've walked where Je- I've shopped where Jesus walked. I've done all that stuff. I can't get to Hebron. Every time I try to get to Hebron, there's an uprising. And I can't get there and nobody will take me and I can't get there to see. I want to see the tomb of the patriarchs. It's on my bucket list to get there someday. May not get there in this mortal, corruptible state, but I will get there one day. Uh, Because it is a statement of faith. That tomb is a place for them to say, God will keep his word and we will see him in our body and therefore we are making our statement here. I want you to look at Genesis 49. Verse 29. Israel is an old man, this Jacob. What a life that guy had. Brothers who gave him fits. Sons who gave him fits. Seemingly the loss of a child. And then finding out that Joseph is alive. Transferring everybody from the promised land down to Egypt. And now he's dying. And he says these words. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is at the field of Machpelah. Which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan. Which Abraham brought, bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. I believe the reference gathering to his people is that his spirit went to be with Abraham and with Isaac and with Abel. That's there. But the focus is on the body. And so they will mummify Jacob and they will mourn for him and they will take him back and place him in that cave. Even though everybody is going back to Egypt. The grave is a place for the body. Because the body is critical to the hope of resurrection. The hope that we have is a real world hope. It's heavenly in that it comes from God, but it's physical and literal for us to hope. And the paradox is that the body ultimately is the final and ultimate proof of the conquering of death. We have a story that says Jesus rose from the dead. 
And if all we believe is that he rose from the dead and we're going to go be with him, but we're going to leave our body here, we have a story like other people have a story. Surviving the death of the body is a common belief among human beings. We continue on as ghosts. Or we continue on as spirits. Or shades in the Greek world. Our mind continues on. Or we continue in another dimension. I don't know, that may be good for you. I don't care much about it. First of all, I don't know if, how you would know if that's true. And I've heard ghost stories and I see the TV things and it doesn't sound like much of a life. You know, you get to hang around at the place where you had an accident. You have to hang out in a house and wait for other people to live in it. I, I don't get these stories. Boy, people are desperate to have something beyond death. And we have it. But we don't have it without the body. Reincarnation, another body. Come back as an aunt. Or an uncle. Our hope is unique. It is the conquering of death. And death is found in the body, not in the spirit. And so Job says, I'd like you to turn to Job chapter 19. Job 19 verse 23. Job is... Musing in this book, if a man dies, will he live again? And when he gets to this section, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that the iron stylus and lead, that they were engraved in a rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, not in heaven. After my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh. He's talking about not away from my flesh, but in my flesh. From the perspective of my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. The hope of Judaism and of Christianity is that these bodies we wholly will be raised from the dead. So James tells us in chapter 2 verse 26 that the body without the spirit is dead. Not the spirit without the body is dead. The body without the spirit. Notice the focus on the body. And we don't focus on that in this culture. We just have this kind of idea of transferring to heaven. So, my last verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You should not go through a resurrection Sunday without reading chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If you're going to read the Christmas story uh, and you're going to read... Uh, the resurrection stories, this is a good one to add to the resurrection stories. And I want to pick it up at verse uh, 26. 15.26 says, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
Now, Jesus has conquered death. How do we know? There's an empty tomb. What about Machpelah? Is that one empty? Nope. How about the one of your relatives? Empty? Not mine. But Jesus' tomb is empty. Because the body matters and the body was transformed. Because that's the only evidence that death has been conquered. But this verse says, the last enemy to be abolished is death. Because as you know, and as we're painfully aware of, death still comes among us. That enemy is conquered, but it is not yet abolished. And so, in chapter 15, verse 50, Paul tells us about the abolishing of death. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I love that verse, but I can't think of that verse without thinking of it as the ideal verse to put over a nursery in a church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, what I just did there was change the meaning of that text. And that's what we keep doing. That's not what that text means. That's cute. But that's not what that text means. What that text means is, we shall all not die. But all of us, those who have died and those who don't die, will be changed. And that will happen at the resurrection. And so he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. I love that we sound the shofar at Yom Terah and at those places. That that sounding of the shofar and reminding us that one day the sky will be split open and the trump will sound and the Lord will descend. And we will see him but in a second. The dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive will be caught up and changed to be with them. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality. By the way, what's that talking about? Is that talking about the Spirit? Talking about the body. Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we await some more empty tombs. 
there are tombs up in Auburn that I await to be opened. And in my relatives who know the Lord to come out of there. There's a grave in Garden Grove that I ache for every day for Braden to come out of that ground. And if the Lord tarries, I'll be right beside him and we'll come out together. Not some spirit, not some ethereal thing. Physically, immortal, eternal, as just as his body is. That's a hope. That's the end of death forever. That's what we celebrate today. We celebrate the resurrection. So Jewish and Christian graves are a statement of faith. That as his tomb is empty, so our tombs will also be empty. From the tomb of Machpelah to the present tomb of Lazarus, I have no idea where that is. To the tomb of millions of Jews and Christians who like Job trust in God to raise their body. We place our dead into the ground in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And so today we affirm the paradox of the tombs. They do not represent death. They represent hope. And that hope of the resurrection. So every time you see a Jewish or Christian grave, you see a testimony. A testimony of one who believes that this mortal will put on immortality and this perishable will put on imperishable. Let's pray.